And we're live. Welcome, everybody, to Sulha. So, muted. Can you all hear me? No, we can. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, we we thought we went live. We did the intros and everything. Ellie started introducing herself, and then thank you, uh, Ben K, in the comments for asking if we're running late because that's the only reason I, I noticed we weren't live. So, introduction round two. Welcome, everybody. Tonight, we're doing something a little bit different. It's not a great debate session. It's not a one-on-one -on -one interview. It's going to be a conversation on anti-Semitism. I found two individuals whose perspective and knowledge I very much trust. And um, the idea is for us to just have an open-minded conversation. Maybe you could call it a brainstorm session. The idea is to talk about different forms of anti-Semitism and how they manifest themselves today and talk more about strategies at how to effectively educate people about anti-Semitism. Um, before we get started, a quick shout out to our Patreon Visionary members. We have Trivium Energy PTYLTD, SOG, SOG Cannabis, Max Marine, Geffen Posner, Adam Becker, Maya, Kimberly, our one and only champion member, Raja, and our one and only legendary men, member, Speedy Weedy. If you want to support the show, you can find a link in the description. All and any support is greatly appreciated. Okay, now that we got our second intro out of the way, without further ado, it's a great pleasure to, to welcome Ellie Cohen and Sarah Simon on the show. Uh, please start by introducing yourselves. Thank you so much for having us, Adar. So my name is Ellie Cohn. I do a bit of activism on different social media platforms. I kind of got into the space about a year and a half or so ago when I came across my grandfather's diaries. He had basically written out his entire Holocaust survival story, our family history over the course of 25 years after the war. Unfortunately, he lost his memory before he was able to finish making it into a book, which was his ultimate goal. So about a year and a half ago, when I came across it, I started working on that, which I've been doing ever since. Um, and around the same time that I started writing the book, I started noticing a lot of anti-Semitism on social media, just getting worse and more mainstream. So I started also seeing some other accounts that were combating it. And I was like, hey, if they're doing that, I could do it too. So it's kind of a combination of those two things at the same time, doing a lot of Holocaust research and really diving into that, while at the same time being able to pass on a lot of the information that I was taking in to others. Thank you, Ellie. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us, Dar. I guess the brief introduction is I am Sarah Simon. I just graduated from university and I'm now working full time, basically offering legal support to people who are claiming wrongful conviction or innocence in the American criminal justice system. And that is something I guess I'll tether it here that's directly inspired by my family's experiences being Holocaust survivors. Um, the fight against codified oppression and white supremacy is very close to my heart and being Jewish has always very much motivated me to engage in that in this country um, or the fight against it, of course. Um, and so I'm just very grateful to be here. I've been doing Jewish advocacy work for several years now, mostly in the form of research, but also like taking that research to more public forums, speaking with people about different issue areas, about Jewish identity a lot of the time. Um, I'm active on Twitter. I used to be more active than I am now on Clubhouse. And I also do things in my circles in real life. Thank you both. Um, so I have a few things I want to get to, but I guess we'll let the conversation naturally flow and, you know, ho hopefully we get there. What I see, mo most of the activism I witness 
um, against the anti-Semitism takes place on social media. And that's where today a lot of advocacy work uh, takes place. I'm still not convinced how much weight social media activism carries. Like, I'm, I don't know how much it's impacting elections. I'm not saying it's not, but it's still like something I'm, I'm trying to assess. But it's clear that people on social media, their voice plays an impact. From from your experience, do you feel like the direction in which Jewish activists are taking their activism, the way they're having these conversations, do you feel like it's effective? Do you feel like they're going in the right direction? Or is there certain things you'd like to see improved or you think are worth critiquing? Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I think yeah. there's definitely a mixture. There are definitely some accounts I follow that I'm like, that's really great stuff. And then there are some that I kind of cringe sometimes when I open the pages. So I think there's definitely a mixture of different voices. I also like to look at each page as having their own purpose. So my page might not be a page that reaches a certain non-Jewish community or like someone has another special interest that they're able to also share in their page and reach someone, whether they're vegan and they talk about that on their page also, and they can reach that community, et cetera. So I do think each page kind of has its own special purpose and people that they can reach that another page might not necessarily be able to. But at the same time, I definitely do think that there is some room for improvement just overall in general across the board on all pages. Yeah, to build on that a little bit. So to start with the positive, something that's really great that I see is there's kind of been a wave since around March of 2020 of young Jewish people feeling more... Um, inclined or inspired to speak up and to speak on behalf of our people. Uh, I think that's been something that's really beautiful. We've seen a lot more accounts crop up or accounts grow by the thousands. Um, that being said, with this new influx comes certain gaps um, in terms of effective engagement that I think sometimes are not being addressed because there's not really like a program for this, right? Everyone's kind of acting on their own, even if people think we're all part of some sort of propaganda outlet um, that's being told what to say step by step. That's not the case, obviously. Um, and so certain things like that I hope we touch upon here, like using trauma porn as a substitute for actual explanations of certain phenomenon, um, name calling instead of explaining things, or just not really speaking from an informed perspective sometimes even as an issue. So there's lots to be said in this respect. Great. So, uh, you know, back to Ellie, you mentioned the, the different pages and I'm wondering if you both have considered like a, a problem in the incentive pages have because, and it doesn't necessarily need to be a, a page that's an organization. It could be an individual who's speaking out against activism. Their, whether their, their career or their social media clout is very much dependent on uh, providing content showing examples of anti-Semitism. Now, it creates a situation where if you want your channel or page to grow, you're then going to seek out any instance of anti-Semitism you could find and then highlight it to the world. And I guess my concern is, is twofold. One, I think this creates a situation where we can, where we're potentially looking for anti-Semitism begin seeing it in places it might not exist but also I'm concerned for actual Jews who are spending their day on social media consuming anti-Semitism all day. 
I don't think it's it, it's it's good for for the well-being of Jewish people to just see that hate. Because even if we were to reduce anti-Semitism by 90%, which would be a great win, right? We could, we, that'd be awesome. That 10% is still enough to flood our social media feeds all day and give us the impression that it's everywhere. So the question is, how can we responsibly talk about it without being incentivized to look for it in places it might not exist and just, you know, blow it up on people's news feeds all day long? Yeah, so I think one of the things that's really important when it comes to like posting on, well, this is what like my thought process kind of when it comes to posting on my account is I try to really think like, what is the purpose of each post that I make? And like a lot of the posts on my page are really just talking about like some different topics in Judaism. Some of them will cover like Holocaust conversion and Detroit cards at different topics. But I try to make sure that each post has like a direct thought process behind it and a direct goal of what do I want to do with this post? Like, who do I want this post to reach? That's also one thing that I think is really important for different accounts to kind of like think to themselves, like, who's my target audience? And based on who the target audience is, is to kind of gear the content to that target audience. If I'm making an entire platform to explain Jewish topics to non-Jews, which I do gear a lot of my content to, then there's certain community stuff that I'm probably going to not talk about on that page. So I think it's really important for people to kind of really think about the thought process and really understand what target audience they have and what to do in order to reach that audience. And not only to reach them, but also to have them understand anti-Semitism because them just acknowledging that it exists out there is only like the pre-first step to actually having an impact on changing people's minds. Um, In tandem to that, actually, my rule of thumb that I wish more people would adopt is that anti-Semitism should never be the primary lens through which you are engaging with the Jewish community or with your own Jewish identity. You know, underneath what we're fighting against, which is bigotry and propaganda and hatred, we're fighting for something that is much more sacred and much more important. And I think that there's a lot of Jewish people who have a lot to learn in terms of what we're fighting to preserve. And sharing that information is just as, if not more valuable, lends non-Jewish people an understanding of who we are, um, of our traditions, of our collective culture, as well as informs the Jewish population about like what they're a part of. So I personally like to consume content that's mostly about our own narrative, our own history, our own story. And of course, that comes intertwined with instances of persecution, because that's pretty omnipresent throughout our history. Um, but it's not the lens through which I understand my Jewish identity and my Jewish history. So that's what I have to say to that end. Yeah, okay. to add on to the to the idea of Jewish history, I think one of the things you mentioned, Adar, it's almost like in some cases calling out quote unquote anti-Semitism is being, I feel like a bit is sometimes being replaced for education and for history. I'm obviously I'm like a big history person, especially when it comes to Jewish history, since I spend most of my days like reading and writing about that. And I think that it's really important that we don't forget that calling out anti-Semitism and just talking about instances of it cannot be a replacement for preserving our history and for educating others on our history. So I would even take it one step further and say, not only is it not a replacement, that might act as a counterproductive tactic if we're just going to hurl out accusations of anti-Semitism without giving any explanation. Like, I'm worried we risk diluting the meaning of the term where people just aren't going to take charges of anti-Semitism seriously. So it's it's really a concern of of 
instead of taking the time to, to educate people, instead we're just overusing it and people just say, oh, that's just that's just a term that Jews use to shut down conversation. It, it doesn't mean anything. And I, I think we've already begun to, to go down down this path. I guess I'll give one one example, and I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on this. When Elon Omar said uh, something tweeting, it's all about the Benjamins, right? Um, anybody who understands anti-Semitism acknowledges that she engaged in an anti-Semitic trope. Anybody who doesn't ju- is just going to think she's just saying that Israel uses money to influence, uh, has influ- you know, just has global influence, for example, or that money influences politics. Nothing controversial with that statement. E- even to the point where when I saw that tweet and saw outrage, it, it actually took me a few minutes to, to understand. Um, me being a Jew, it, it didn't jump out right away what was so wrong with it. And when I looked at the comments, the majority of the comments calling Elon Omar out was saying, you're an anti-Semite, this is vile, you know, you hate Jews. Very few were actually explaining, uh, listen, Elon, perhaps this was not your intention, but when you do this, you're engaging in uh, anti-Semitic trope, which has caused Jewish communities immense harm. And when you do this, it's hurtful to us. Even that explanation without using the term anti-Semitic, I feel like it would like it would be much easier for people to understand and perceive instead of them just thinking that we're trying to shut down Elon Omar from criticizing Israel. Yeah, so I mean, I did I was kind of thinking of like more so like a different thought process, but they're both great. I was like thinking more of like posting about anti-Semitic incidents and replacement of Jewish history education and just Jewish education in general, like posting that mm-hmm. this hate crime happened or posting that um this swastika was drawn on the stool, for example, which are very important to talk about, but they can't be a replacement for Jewish education and Jewish history. But that said, I absolutely agree that I think, I think also, cause sometimes like in Jewish people's minds, especially cause we're so, um, like we have a different kind of understanding of anti-Semitism that non-Jews can't necessarily grasp onto, at least initially. Um, we might like see something and just like it clicks immediately, like, oh, that's anti-Semitic. Like, of course. Right. But for a non-Jew, it doesn't click at all because they don't understand the way that it necessarily manifests, the way that it's manifested through history. If they don't know the tropes that are being used and the history that's behind this seemingly innocent sentence, it's not going to click for them right away. So I think that often we can almost be doing ourselves a disservice if we don't explain it and if we don't use our platforms to actually explain why these things are harmful and not just that they are harmful. Because if we don't actually do the explaining behind it, then the people that we're trying to reach may never actually understand the thought process behind it. So I think it's nuanced. Um, For me, in my mind, things such as Jews controlling the world through money are like, anti-Semitism 101. And I personally think it's dignified and okay to expect people to understand that that is anti-Semitic, even if you just provide a sense of explanation. Um, What I will say too, is that we're kind of up against a very strange double wall where people inherently don't trust Jews about anti-Semitism for anti-Semitic sentiments and biases that they hold. Um, And so people are not going to believe us a lot of the time when we say something is anti-Semitic. They often very explicitly assume that we are partaking in some sort of nefarious agenda to perpetuate evil doings, quote unquote, in the world, which of course is not true. Um, 
but in a perfect world, people would take us on our word at face value and go do their own research themselves. This comes, though, in tandem with a very insidious sentiment, I think, in certain activist spheres that, you know, you don't owe anyone education about your own culture, about your own persecution. And personally speaking, I would rather have Jewish education about anti-Semitism or about our history and identity come from a Jewish person. And so I guess to kind of connect those thoughts, when Ilhan Omar says something like, it's all about the Benjamins, it is kind of shocking that it requires an explanation. Nonetheless, I think that it is within the realm of possibilities and preferred opportunities to give it, particularly um, if people seem to be open to education. There's a very big distinction there. Um, not everyone is going to be able to have... Um, I guess, a ready mindset to unpack their bigotries and to address some biases that they may hold. And it shouldn't be our job to kind of chase them into a corner until they do. We're not going to solve every single anti-Semite in the world, unfortunately. But I think that just calling someone an anti-Semite a lot of the time doesn't get us to a more informed place as a society writ large. Correct. And, and I think it, it's an important distinction to make that there's a question about do we have a right to respond by calling somebody out, just blatantly say you're an anti-Semite. Sure, that's within our right. The greater question is, is it effective? And I think that's that's what what we're what we're all in agreement here. I, I viewed the Elon Omar tweet as unfortunate because I, I wish there were more people using that threat to educate the viewers because it, it blew up. It was super popular. There were a lot of people engaging. And most people were engaging either saying it's anti-Semitic or saying responding criticism of Israel is an anti-Semitic. Right? That was like where the discourse went instead of a real opportunity to, to potentially change minds. Next time we, we will be better prepared for the next time she tweets something problematic and we'll be there to educate people on why, why it's problematic. Yeah, I think it's also important for people to understand. This is my personal belief and there might be other people that disagree with me and that's fine. But I think that people, not necessarily Ilhan Omar, this isn't like necessarily pertaining to her, but just in general that people can say anti-Semitic things and not hate Jews. Because anti-Semitism is so deeply ingrained that oftentimes people don't realize, obviously this isn't every case, but um, there are cases when people say things that are anti-Semitic and may not hate us and they may be very open to learning and I mean I know a lot of people probably get some pushback for this but um I think that that even though they may say something that's bigoted they may not like be an anti-semite even though they may say something anti-semitic and I think that it's important I, like I know Sarah like mentioned before that there's this idea in activism circles that it's not our job to educate people and I agree with that sentiment in theory but in practice if we don't do it then nobody else is going to if we're not educating about our own history then nobody else is doing it for us and there's also like right now a lot of attempts to rewrite our history coming from all different angles so I think that if we're not the people that are out there educating people about our history if we're not the people out there that are explaining why things are anti-semitic and explaining the thought processes behind them the reasoning behind them, then nobody's going to do it for us. So we're the ones that end up losing out if we don't. Hold on. We have a, we have a comment uh, in the chat. Somebody goes proud anti-Semite here. So I'm not going to delete that comment and I'm not going to ban you from the channel because uh, 
you're welcome to hear our conversation about anti-Semitism. Hopefully we could reach you. Uh, where, where were we? Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. You mentioned before a concept of um, trauma porn. Sarah, you mentioned that in your, can you, can you guys explain what trauma porn is? Yeah, absolutely. So it basically it's using very graphic images or pictures as a substitute for explanations about certain phenomenon. Um, and it's jarring, it's emotionally and effectively um, shocking in many senses. And it does trigger people's um, like sensors, I guess, about certain bad things. Um, that being said, it inherently omits context, um, explanation, and oftentimes is sort of not really effective in terms of explaining to people what's going on and why it happens. Ellie, if you want to expand on that a little bit, I know we were talking. Yeah, I think so recently, actually, I did a poll on like my Instagram stories. I did a video about it that blew up on TikTok. Um, and it was basically asking people questions about the Holocaust, very pointed questions. Like, can you name three ghettos? Can you name five concentration camps? Like, can you name two Jewish partisan groups? And then a very significant amount of people were not able to answer pretty what I would consider basic questions, but also like maybe I'm not the best arbitrator, arbitrator. I forgot how to pronounce that word um, of what's a basic question. <laughs> Thank you. Of what's a basic question when it pertains to Holocaust. But a lot of people did not know. And I also got a lot of messages from Jews that did not know. And my response was always, it's never too late to learn. But a lot of people just kind of know, okay, the Holocaust was bad. Six million Jews died. Auschwitz was bad. Um, but once you start asking pointed questions, no answer, no response. But because that like idea of what happened during the Holocaust is so like decently widespread, like of course Holocaust denial is on the rise as it has been the past couple of years. Um, but most people in America can answer what was the Holocaust, but most people would not be able to answer pointed questions. So I think that oftentimes this like, these pictures, these graphic images can be used in a replacement of actual education and actually explain to people how things got the way they did. Cause I know like some common questions that I get are like, why didn't the Jews leave? Why didn't they try to stop it? But Jews did try to leave. Jews did try to stop it. There was resistance groups. And a lot of these questions just kind of go unanswered because I think the education and the pointed education is, is lacking. There's another insidious flip side to this as well, which is that use of trauma porn, there's a time and place to show people with images Jewish suffering. Absolutely, 100%. Um, but it's best used sparingly, in my opinion, because what it does over a period of time or when it's overused is it desensitizes people um, in a very, very harmful way. I think they start mm. to have certain images emblazoned in their mind that lose the um, impact of what they really represent if it's repeated over and over again. And so that's really one of my main concerns in addition to the lack of education that usually accompanies these images is that are we actually doing more injustice to our past and more harm than good in our good faith efforts to show people what we have gone through and what we've experienced? Yeah, I I really like the the approach of you know educate with like love and compassion, as cliche as that sounds, rather than with like a, a a fist of anger. And again, I'm not saying that anger is by no means justified. I'm 
I'm still stuck on what is the most effective way to get people to understand, um, you know, who, who we are, what we're all about, what kind of behaviors are, are har harmful uh, and hurtful. I want to, I, I, I want to address a, a comment. Maybe one of you can address it because this is a common one. Someone says, aren't Arabs also Semites? <laughs> Um, yeah, the reason I laugh is because it's a phrase that's become increasingly common, very weirdly, over like the past couple of years, even though it has not become any more true. Um, Arabs are not Semites, too. If we want to actually unpack the history of the term anti-Semite and what it means to be a Semitic peoples, we can do that. So Semitic peoples, it's really a language family that originates from a certain region. And yes, Arabs technically speak a Semitic language. That does not mean that they are a Semitic people. Um, that term, that idea of the Semitic race was created by Germans um, when they were constructing this racial hierarchy of pseudo-race science. Um, and the term anti-Semitism was actually coined by someone who wanted to make the prejudice against Jews sound more scientific. It was specifically and exclusively a term constructed for persecution of Jewish people. Um, or discrimination against Jewish people, I should say. And so it has absolutely nothing to do with other people who speak Semitic languages. Um, it's also not even really right. proper to call yourself a Semitic person. So I will leave it at that. But yeah, no. Yeah. Just so, call themselves a Romance language. Right. I said it's like if a Spaniard called themselves a yeah. Romance language. Just, just to build on that. So yeah, there are no Semitic people. It's not a classification of people. It's a classification for languages. But you know, as Sarah explained, it's a term. Anti-Semitic means Jew hatred or negative sentiment towards Jews. That's what the term means. So when responding to a charge of anti-Semitism, but saying, "But Arabs are also Semites." it's either ignorant or just disingenuous because it's not really understanding the point. Um, it's mean, not it's like, saying, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's like completely saying you can't be point. racist because you're a race. Like that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Full yeah. Of logical I can't be racist. Yeah. I'm of the white race, you know, I'm Jewish, so I'm not, but you know, um, Cool. I, another thing, I guess, since we're writing off the comments, so I see that there's people talking about uh, Zionism in Israel, which is interesting because we haven't brought up Zionism or Israel, which I think this is a common uh, modern day manifestation of, uh, of anti-Semitism is to conflate Jews with, with Israel or with Zionism by default, right? The fact that someone is upset that Jews are having a conversation about anti-Semitism and they're, and they're talking about Palestinians means there it's a form it's actually a form of dehumanization it's saying we don't have the right to care about being hated we don't have the right to speak out about things that might bother us why because palestinians are suffering obviously even logically it doesn't make sense but that's that seems to be a very modern day um manifestation is that one you you see a lot all the time i don't think it's possible for a jewish person to post something even about their own culture without getting um someone trying to, I guess, correlate it to what's happening in Israel and Palestine today. Um, I, I actually see it as something that's really insidious, even if people are only the foot soldiers for it and don't really notice what they're partaking in. But I see it as part of a more grand replacement theology that's taking 
form where people are trying to kind of um, erase all Jewish history before Israel existed to make up grandiose lies and claims about us as some sort of evil oppressor in the region that can't exist outside of that. Very false notion. So, Ellie, if you want to add a little bit onto this. Yeah, I do. I actually want to push back on something Azar said, which is that it's problematic to connect Jews to Zionism. I think that um, there's this, like, malicious effort. I made a thread about it, so I'm, like, kind of reading it. But basically, there's, like, this malicious effort to force Jewish people to either abandon their connection to Israel, otherwise be blamed for any. And this was a thread that I made specifically during, like, the peak of the anti-Semitic attacks in Europe. But um, otherwise be blamed for anti-Semitic attacks in diaspora because they connected the Jewish faith and um, and Israel is always the Jewish faith, not the Jewish religion. That's how it's usually phrased. But um. Like the rhetoric is always like they conflated Judaism and Zionism, not they conflated the worldwide Jewish population with the actions of a government who I may or may not have accurate information about. Um, I think the reality is, and this is a reality that a lot of people are trying to either um, ignore, deny, rewrite, is that the the return to a homeland and having a homeland is a big part of Judaism as a religion. There are many like land-based practices, whether an individual Jewish person chooses to practice those, that's up to them. But just because an individual chooses to omit something doesn't mean that it's no longer part of Judaism. Like I just made a post about Shemitah, which is like um, a farming practice that can only be done in the land of Israel every seven years. So there are, and this is like a common theme in Judaism. We pray for the temple to be rebuilt. Um, our holiday season is based on the agricultural season of the land of Israel. So I think that there's this kind of insidious effort to not only force people, force Jewish people to abandon their hopes for self-determination, but also abandon the connection to our homeland. Hmm. Interesting. I, I haven't thought of that perspective until now. I, I guess to even just give pushback on on what what we're all saying, do, because we because we connect often Jewish activists. You know, we connect Judaism to Zionism. Many people say Zionism is is Judaism. So some will take it that far. People then. It, it's not hard to understand why they don't distinguish between Israel and Jews, right? We're, you know, Jewish activists are constantly saying they're interconnected. So then when, when somebody who's against uh, Israel and will question a Jew about Israel, we perceive that as anti-Semitic. But it seems like one of the reasons they're potentially confused about the conflation is because we often talk about the strong ties between the two. So it's almost like whenever we get to an aspect of anti-Semitism that's complex and, and not so intuitive, we need to be more patient with how we educate people because it might be less obvious. Yeah. So I actually just, I saw a comment connected, connecting the Jewish faith to political movement and don't complain about the rise of anti-Semitism, Ellie, you're being rational. And I think it's this like deliberate effort or maybe not always deliberate, but this like effort to kind of ignore, um, ignore like, what people are saying and how they're explaining it because like for example you look up the pride sorry not pride parade you look up the parade the parade schedule in new york you'll see a plethora of different ethnic groups having parades about their culture about their land that they came from and no problem or sometimes maybe a problem but um for the most part they can go on with their parades they can go on with their celebrating their heritage their culture where they came from 
Um, and people don't necessarily make that a political, like governmental issue. They don't make them, they don't go up to them and say, oh, you're celebrating your heritage. Now you have to answer for right. whatever question right. I want to ask you about the government. So it's also, I, th I think when people say like you're connecting the Jewish faith, the political movement, it's also this effort to pretend that the idea of returning to our homeland just came up out of nowhere in the 19th, 18th century and wasn't an idea for 2000 years. Like, okay, we're connecting the Jewish faith. Like, what's the, like, what do we say in the Amidah prayer? Like, we pray to rebuild the temple. Like, what's the first Rashi in the Torah? It's about living in Israel. So, um, and like I said, not, because obviously, like, people are going to say, well, there's anti-Zionist Jews. That's a response I get a lot. There are anti-Zionist Jews. And a Jewish person can choose to omit these things from the way that they practice. That's their choice. I'm not here to force anyone to tell them they have to move to Israel or tell them they have to pray the Amidah. That's completely up to them. But it does exist within Judaism the idea of returning to a homeland. Judaism as a religion, as a culture, is centered around our homeland and the idea that we are a people with a shared culture and a shared origin. So I'm gonna expand a little bit on what Ellie's saying. I think Adar kind of the conflation that you're making speaks a bit to the replacement theology that I posited earlier. This idea that, you know, all Jewish people can only be tethered to certain actions of a government that have happened in the past 30, 40, 50 years. Um, Zionism is not the modern day formation of the Israeli government. And also Jewish people in diaspora who are not formerly citizens of, formally, wow, citizens of Israel don't owe people their opinions on a government thousands of miles away. It would be objectively right. racist. I don't want to, I think moral clarity is the ability to speak without comparisons, but for some people, reason people get very confused on Jewish people, it would be objectively racist to go up to someone of a different nationality or heritage and ask them about the actions of their government thousands of miles away, assuming a bunch of very false and bigoted things about that government. Um, and so I think that that's kind of what we're facing now. Zionism is inherently a part of Judaism. They are not one in the same, but they are inextricable from each other. And anyone who tries to deny that oftentimes uh, speaks with a great degree of historical inaccuracy, I think. Um, and that's really the way that I operate in this space is solely based in history. And in fact, um, I think too, it's very, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. There's a lot that I could say to this end, but I think it's disingenuous to conflate the current Israeli government with Zionism. Um, and I also think that a lot of people engage in certain double standards towards the Jewish people and towards Israel that they wouldn't otherwise. I want to expand on that a drop because you mentioned the Israeli government. And I think there's this question we often get, do you support the Israeli government? And I think I'm going to be very blunt. I think it is one of the stupidest questions that people can ask because there is no government entity that I support. There is Yeshatid and there's Meretz. There's all different kinds of politicians and policies that are being pushed for. Someone can vote for a party all the way on the left. Someone can vote for a party all the way on the right. So what does it mean to you support the Israeli government? Like there could be a, someone could support Meretz. Someone could support Yamina. Like there is no one like it's not a one party system. There's a plethora of different politicians and policies, some that I wanna see in office, some that I don't, like in any other government entity. Um, so yeah, I think it's like a really ridiculous question. I haven't ever been asked it about any other government. I've traveled a lot. I obviously don't have an accent when I speak English. Um, and no one's ever asked me, do you support the American government? 
Um, so I think it's, it's also like this way that's often used to like pick out like the good Jews versus the bad Jews. That's how it feels like a lot of the time. Right, right. And I guess we could look at like a parallel example. So let's take China, for example, who we, we have seen uh, an increase in anti-Asian attacks in the United States, but you didn't hear anybody, at least nobody on the left said, oh, but that's just because of China and what they're doing. Like no one tried to excuse it and give like a causality for the anti-Asian hate. They said you shouldn't hate Asians for being Asian. Like that's just obvious, right? No, no need to elaborate. But it seems like when it comes, when you have a similar situation just with Jews, then people are more likely to bring up Israel being a factor and justifying that hate as a result of Israel's action. It does seem like a pretty clear double standard. I want to get a little bit into the historicity of this phenomenon here, because I think it's vitally important to what sure, we're yeah. talking about. Um, scapegoating Jews as a collective for wanting sovereignty in our indigenous land is something that far predates the actual establishment of Israel and cannot be chalked up to like, quote unquote, blowback for Israel's actions. There were plans that were drafted by the Arab League in 1947 before there was a single Palestinian refugee, a single declaration of war against the Jews um, that basically took all of the Mizrahi Jews, their property, their nationality, their rights um, in those countries and stripped them of them. It was a drafted legislation. I can find the exact name for you. Um, and there were a thousand Jews that were killed in the surrounding region. Um, I think it was the decade before in the name of this anti-Jewish sovereignty sentiment. And so I think it's really disingenuous actually when people uh, try and victim blame Jews for the rise in anti-Semitism as a result of quote unquote Israel, um, because it's something that predates Israel, the alleged reason for it, as well as just is victim blaming on its face. So I think it's, the history here is a little bit important. Yeah, to add on to that, it was also like the idea that like, oh, something happens to Israel, therefore go attack Jews in the diaspora. Like even in the 40s, it was something the British were actually doing, the far right um, in like there was an attack, for example, like I remember one of the, I believe there's the Irgun, I could, don't quote me on that, that carried out an attack against the British. And in response, there was a huge riot against Jews in Britain by a bunch of far right fascists. So it's not this new concept or a new phenomenon. It's not something the left thought of on its own. Um so yeah, it's definitely, it's been around. Someone also wrote a comment um, that I wanted to just respond to. I lost it, but it was basically that um, anti-Zionism or Zionism is new, so we can't blame, so we can't blame anti-Semitism on it. First of all, okay, I have, I'm like not of the belief that every anti-Zionist is an anti-Semite inherently. Um, oftentimes they go hand in hand, but I don't think it's an inherent connection. That's just my personal belief. I'll probably get pushed back for that. But anyways. Ellie um, taking the hot takes tonight. I appreciate that. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, but anyways, it, first of all, it's a really bad argument because I could just point to Nazism wasn't around until more modern times, but anti-Semitism existed before that. But I think we'd all agree that Nazism is anti-Semitic, not to compare that to anti-Zionism, but um, just to give an example of how that's a really bad argument. But um, it definitely isn't the only manifestation of anti-Semitism today. And we did kind of talk for like 30 minutes before mentioning Zionism. Yeah, I, I do want to give a little bit of I'm not sure I, I fully agree with the Arab League example, just because. And I think this does get into the Palestinian issue. I think that. For a Palestinian to oppose the state of Israel is just a logical conclusion of being Palestinian. 
regardless of how you feel about Jews, it's without a doubt that many Palestinians are also anti-Semitic. They've been in conflict with with Jews for a hundred years. Again, this this should not justify group hate. The anti-Semitism exists, but when 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 we summarize so simply, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. We're essentially accusing all virtually virtually all or the vast majority of Palestinians of anti-Semitism. When really it just makes sense that they're going to oppose a nation that they've been at war with for a hundred years. So I, I think we need to be careful when it comes, when it, having a conversation about anti-Zionism when it comes to Palestinians, I think needs to be done a bit differently for how we're having that conversation with, for example, uh, a Westerner living in Europe or the United States. I agree with that. And I, I think also like there's something I say is that anti-Zionism has evolved far beyond a conflict in the Middle East. And I strongly believe that. Um, an example I could point to is Holocaust inversion and um, secondhand anti-Semitism phenomenon in Europe and a way that they just use, like Europeans can just use, there's a bunch of studies done on this. If anyone actually wants them, they could DM me them. But um, just to touch on it, the way that like Europeans can use Israel as a way to expunge guilt for the Holocaust. Um, we could point to like one of the famous cases when a Nazi actually used that argument in court to try to justify his crimes during World War II. He said, well, look at the Israelis, like look at them. So it's fine. So, and obviously that guy doesn't, that Nazi that's using the argument doesn't care about Palestinians. It's not his concern. His concern is getting right, right. on trial. So I think that it's like the way I phrase it is that it's evolved far beyond the Middle East and just the Israel-Palestine itself. I think it's evolved into a phenomena, whether it was like um, 40s propaganda, anti-Semitic propaganda, obviously the propaganda machine by the Soviet Union, it's evolved far beyond just Israel-Palestine. I'm going to take a hard disagreeing stance to both of you um, for several reasons. And I'm going to try to connect a lot of thoughts that I'm having right now. So first of all, anti-Zionism in my mind and in the vast majority of people that I've spoken to's mind is anti-Semitism. It needs to be explained in our terms or people who hold this views terms. So I will do that. For me, if you identify as anti-Zionist, then you are against the Jewish people's collective right to sovereignty and therefore are bigoted against Jewish people. There's this very, very, very insidious notion going around that somehow, some way, if you oppose the end of Jewish sovereignty, but weirdly no one else's, you oppose equality. I do not buy that for a second. I think it's very flawed and very, very dangerous. Um, a lot of people who identify as anti-Zionist might not actually be anti-Zionist because of the way that our liberation movement, the word for it has been bastardized, but I don't think that we should acquiesce to that position in the slightest. Additionally, to say that Palestinians have the right to be against Jewish sovereignty um, and therefore in the minds of many people, anti-Semitic, I think is really flawed. Um, Bigotry of lowest expectations is still a form of bigotry. Bigotry of lowered expectations is still a form of bigotry. And I don't think that we should tolerate that, particularly when we treat the people who we are hopefully going to be diplomatically or colloquially engaging with, with respect. Um, furthermore, 
I think that when you open that Pandora's box of because of certain experiences with a group of people, you are allowed to harbor certain negative sentiments against them collectively. I think it's really dangerous. It basically opens the door for all Mizrahim and Sephardim to be anti-Arab and Islamophobic. As we know, they experience centuries of persecution and dimitude um, living under these rulers. I think that that's um, not something that I would personally be comfortable with is open um, bigoted sentiment towards Arabs or Islam in the name of what Jews face um, under certain rulers. Additionally, um, it gives a lot of Ashkenazim uh, the right to be bigoted towards certain other nationalities that um, I also would not be comfortable with tolerating. So I hope that that made sense. Um, I think yeah. that there's just like a little bit missing in those lowered expectations for me. Personally. So I, I hear that. I'm, I'm happy we have a, a difference in opinion here because it's going to help us, you know, just bring more out of this conversation. I think that the challenge is that most anti-Zionists, again, actually, I don't want to say most, but a significant portion of anti-Zionists are not saying they're against Jewish sovereignty per se. They're, they're rejecting the state of Israel. They're, they're rejecting Zionism as it's manifested itself because they cannot separate Israel from its history and its policies. So when Palestinians think Israel, they think of, of the Nakba. They think of the, the current occupation of the West Bank. Like this is their experience with Israel. So it's it's almost an issue with definitions. So it's quite possible that the majority of people who identify as anti-Zionist aren't actually anti-Zionist the way you describe it. But nonetheless, we're not giving them that benefit of the doubt. Generally speaking, we're saying they identify as anti-Zionist. That's a form of anti-Semitism. But those people aren't necessarily saying Jews don't have a right to self-determination and Jews don't have a right to sovereignty. They're just saying these aspects of the state of Israel, they're the state of Israel as it is today is not something I, I could support. Therefore, I'm anti-Zionist. And I, I think a significant amount of anti-Zionists are actually, that that's, that's how they view things. In terms of bigotry of low expectations, I, I agree. I mean, one of the things that I uh, am critical of what I view in left-wing social justice movements is that, that they seem to constantly be engaging in bigotry of low expectations by kind of babying the people that, that they claim to be fighting for. I don't consider this to be low expectations. I consider it to just being honest about reality because I think in order to be effective, we need to meet reality where it's at. So just to show consistency here, I think Israelis harbor a lot of anti-Arab sentiment, a lot. It's not justifiable, but it's understandable. It's because we've been in conflict with Palestinians for a hundred years. We, you know, Israelis, many of them are genuinely, genuinely scared of Arabs. So I'm not saying that that's okay, that we need to work to, you know, work through that so we don't view Arabs differently, but it's understandable where, where it came from. And I think just being able to acknowledge where, where people are at, I think is important in how we can then address our people. So can I flip your logic for a clarifying question? Sure, yeah. Are you then in turn saying that you understand why Palestinians identify as anti-Zionist, but you're not okay with it? and think that it's bigoted? I can understand. Yeah, I'd say that that's a 
I, I don't I wouldn't use the term bigoted. I would say that anti-Zionism is a natural result of being a Palestinian, especially if you live here on the land. That's going to be the, the outcome of your life. Um, I, I, what, what I say, and, I, and we have this conversation all the time, and I, I get shit for, for anti-Zionists for saying this. I, I say trying to dismantle or destroy Israel is only going to radicalize Jewish people. It's only going to radicalize Israelis. It makes Israelis less empathetic towards your cause. Uh, denying Israel's right to exist is more likely to harm Palestinian national aspirations than it is Jewish national aspirations. This to me, just I just viewed as a very effective way to explain what's wrong with trying to dismantle Israel. In addition to that, I say I support Jewish self-determination the same way I support Palestinian self-determination. And this is just the language that people are like, okay, that makes more sense, right? Like I didn't use Zionism. I didn't use anti-Semitism. I didn't use these terms that, again, I'm, I, I don't have any issue with labeling something anti-Semitism, but I think in certain conversations, there's an easier way to explain your perspective um, and your people's perspective without using certain terms. And I think in this instance, sure, it holds true. I agree with you. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm kind of like in between you guys almost. Like, I, I agree. So my kind of premise is that anti-Zionism as a movement is anti-Semitic. Like, the goal ultimately is to take away the Jewish people's self-determination. That's the end goal. And I've found along the way that not only self-determination, but also ties to our, our homeland. That's in, that's what it's been. That's, um, it's not a movement for something. It's a movement against something in the name itself. So, but I don't think that every anti-Zionist is inherently anti-Semitic, but I think that, and I, I, I will agree that I apply a separate standard to Palestinians when, when calling oneself anti-Zionist than I do to like the rest of the world population. I don't agree with you on the anti-Semitism part, but I'll get to that after. But um, I, I have lost my train of thought. Um, I different completely. different expectations when when you're speaking to Palestinians, for example, than a Western. Oh yeah, when like calling that. when calling themselves yeah. anti-Zionist, but I do I don't so I don't think that every anti-Zionist inherently hates Jews, but I think that for the majority of the world, once they find out oh Zionism is Jewish self determination, and they still choose to call themselves anti-Zionist, I think that comes from a place of anti-Zionism, whether they recognize that or not. And I also agree with what Sarah said about like justifying hatred against entire populations. I think that's an extremely slippery slope that will just lead we need to, to be careful. the entire yeah. world of hatred against everyone right. that's never ending. Um, I can say, I mean, all Jews generally come from backgrounds where they've been wronged by a population, whether it's my dad getting kicked out of his country in the 50s, all for my grandparents, Holocaust survivors, one of my uncles sent to a detention camp in Cyprus due to the white papers. But I'm not going to sit here and justify hatred against all populations of everyone in all those countries or all those people that did those things, because it's just this endless cycle of hatred. I'd rather find people in each of those populations that are good people, which I know exist. Right. I, I will just yeah. bottom line my position, which I think we probably agree on like 95%. We're just highlighting the 5% that we disagree on, or maybe even thinking of different examples in our minds. Um, but what I will say is that I look to history here and I see that denial of Jewish sovereignty as an idea 
or as a physical manifestation in any part of the land is something that predates a single action of the state of Israel. And I can't untether modern day anti-Zionist labels or sentiments from its history. It's very longstanding, bloody and violent history. Um, I also fully respect that there are tandem narratives here to people who are vying for sovereignty and for self-determination. I see anti-Zionism as a mutually exclusivist ideology in many senses, in that it mandates the denial of Jewish sovereignty for its political agenda, whereas Zionism as a aspirational movement and political ideology has always um, accommodated for and or promised for in all of the diplomatic agreements. Of course, there have been mishaps, but it has promised for both Palestinian sovereignty in coexistence, in co-active existence even, with Jewish sovereignty. And to this day, I've asked hundreds of people from hundreds of backgrounds, like truly so many different types of people, very few, actually none, have been able to tell me the problem with both Jewish and Palestinian sovereignty, aside from the Jews having sovereignty part. And to me, that's a double standard that is underscored by bigotry against Jewish people. And I can't tolerate it from anyone, even if they are Palestinian. I think we need to have mutual recognition as the basis um, for any steps moving forward. So I, I think this it shows how clearly our vantage point points differ because of the activism we're involved in. So you're well better informed about the history. A lot of the anti-Zionists you're interacting with um, are living in the United States, for example, while me, I, I don't have in any way, shape or form a specialty on the topic of uh, anti-Semitism, but a lot of my day-to-day -day interaction are, is with Palestinians who very much are anti-Zionist, but have nothing against Jews. So you understand through that experience that maybe some of the way we're having the conversation is wrong. So again, different vantage points yeah. lead people to different conclusions. And we need different conversations with different groups of people. This is something that um, that we, we need to, like, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give an example. So every when you're speaking to somebody, um, you need to speak to them a language that, that they're going to understand and hear you. If not, then what's even the point? So... I will consciously change the words I use when talking about the conflict. If I'm speaking to somebody who's Israeli or Palestinian, if they're right wing or left wing, consciously I'll use different language. Some could say this makes me uh, two faced, right? I'm not being honest, but I, I think that simply being effective at, at communication. And I think we need to understand that there's not going to be a one size fits all approach to having these conversations. Um, and just, just to reemphasize, uh, I think one of the strongest ways we could describe our support for Jewish self-determination to an anti-Zionist is to say, I support Jewish self-determination the same way I support Palestinian self-determination. That kind of, that's a curveball that most people don't know how, how to uh, deal with. It's, it's not, it's, it's counter yeah. to, yeah, yeah. And if you're an individual who doesn't support Palestinian self-determination, well, then you can't use that argument and you're going to have to figure out what you're all about. This really gets back to the underlying question here of effective Jewish advocacy on two fronts, I think. Number one, a lot of the time, well, first of all, you can't speak to all people just as a facet of location and language barriers, etc. But number one, oftentimes we're not speaking to the people that we need to be speaking to, to be making um, 
important strides on certain fronts. Uh, I think it's a huge problem. Social media inherently lends itself to being an echo chamber in many senses. You follow what you want to see. Oftentimes people don't take the extra step to follow what they don't want to see and critically think about it. Um, number two, you speak about the different language you use for different audiences. I think that this is vitally important and it's not part of a political agenda in any sense. It's just knowing your audience, knowing what people understand about the world around him uh, or her and like trying to figure out the best way to communicate with them and connect with them and see where their mind is at and understand how you can share um, your own perspective with them. So I just think it's smart advocacy to be able to speak to different audiences. And I think we need to get right. better structurally about doing that as well. Right. Which, which is very difficult if you're on a platform where you have a broad audience, then you're, you can never, you can never please everybody, but uh, you can only try. Since we're getting into, wait, I, I forgot how much time you both said you, you had. Wow. An hour already passed. That's crazy. <laughs> I'm good. I blocked off my afternoon, so you're good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm good until the kids come barging in, pretty much. Okay. Um, since we're getting into, like, really nuanced areas of how we define anti-Semitism, there's other areas where I, I think we're... I, I'm, I'm worried that... And I see this with all forms of activism, whether it's racial justice or women's rights, that there's there's people who will use the term like racism or anti-Semitism. They kind of weaponize it to shut down conversation. It's just an easy way to delegitimize somebody instead of engaging with them. And I, there's one interesting instance I thought of that I'm very interested in hearing what you both think. So if I were to say that George Soros uh, uses his money to influence politics, is that anti-Semitic? I mean, I think a lot of times looking at the context is important. Like if I'm talking to a MAGA supporter that is like, oh, George Soros uses money to influence politics, then I would probably have the assumption that, oh, this person's probably anti-Semitic. If I'm talking about George Soros's life and his accomplishments and somebody goes, oh, well, he's used his money to influence politics or whatever, I forgot the exact sentence. Um, I would probably look at it a bit differently. So I think a lot of it is like context keys and really understanding the context around things. I think obviously it's specifically with George Soros, there are tons of conspiracies about him. It's like almost a dog with a whistle at this point. But um, yeah, I hope that was a decent explanation. You want to build on that, Sarah, or should I? Um, you, you don't have to. You know, only the only you... thing I would say is context is everything. Um, and I think to be monolithic in our claims about anything is very dangerous, but I would love to That's hear your true. thoughts. That's true. I, I asked, a, I said, let's get into nuance. And then I asked a very simplistic <laughs> question without any context. Um, I, I guess that th this is, this is the concern because the left talks about how the Koch brothers use their money to influence politics or how Rupert Murdoch, for example, uh, uses his money to, to influence politics. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of questioning of wealthy people and how they use their money to influence politics. Jew, Jew, wealthy Jews who use their money to influence politics should not be shielded because they're Jewish. Like to me, that just doesn't make sense in how we engage in discourse. So like, I, I feel like if you could 
And again, I agree, context is everything. And sometimes that claim could be certainly a red flag for somebody who's anti-Semitic. But I feel like if the left is allowed to talk about how the Koch brothers influence politics, then the right should be allowed to talk about how Soros um, influences politics. Is it is it true that anti-Semitism is fueling the conspiracy about George Soros? 100%. But uh, questioning his influence in politics by default can't be, in my opinion, can't be considered anti-Semitic. I 100% agree. George Soros is like a really interesting example that you choose because he has been so, I don't know, if it's not lionized, but it's made into this like figmented um, image of the perennial Jew. Um, like literally Orban's whole government has like a policy agenda situated against George Soros. Like it's, it's crazy. Um, but I think that like, if you're actually genuinely looking to interrogate or examine or criticize political agendas, regardless of background and money attached, that's not only acceptable, but it's probably meritorious. Um, and I don't see a problem with it, but I do think George Soros is interesting because he's been turned kind of into this symbol right. in and of himself by anti-Semitic. And, and there's a question that if he weren't Jewish, would he still be a target the way he is? And we, we, we may conclude that perhaps not, but at the same time, the Koch brothers are not Jewish and they get all the shit for, for being influential. So. It seems like that's certainly the area where we can't just be quick to throw a label out. Like that's definitely something that we need to give somebody the benefit of the doubt and understand where that claim is coming from before giving them a label. In, in, in general, do you feel like, and again, context matters, but do you think that we need to be give generally speaking, give people the benefit of the doubt and work from there? Like let's assume they're just uneducated and work to educate them rather than assume they're guilty. Because I do feel like in many activist spaces, the assumption is that somebody is intentionally being uh, bigoted instead of them just being ignorant. My answer to that is very simple and it's two pronged. Number one, we have to assume that most people in the world as a way, as a facet of the way that the society is constructed harbor anti-Semitic sentiments and biases. It's how all bigotry works. It's caked into these institutions. But the second prong of that is that there's literally no point in engaging in this work if you don't give benefit of the doubt to people. If you don't believe that you can change their hearts and their minds, why are you talking in the first place? You shouldn't be. And if you believe that everyone is malicious, that's also probably a you problem. And so my strategy is to give most people who are not obviously trolling or beyond a very frightening point of return. Cause I think it's important to remember oftentimes we're literally speaking to people who would like us dead. Um, not oftentimes, but sometimes um, that we do make a good faith attempt to offer resources, to offer conversation, to offer education when we have the bandwidth to do so. Yeah. I think that's like kind of the whole point to activism is to change people's minds and to influence other people's thoughts process specifically in regards to your own community whatever it is that you're a part of expand people's minds different topics that they didn't necessarily know about before about jewish people specifically in regards to my own activism so if i'm operating off the assumption that people's minds are closed and that they're not willing to um to learn more they're so baked into their hatred that they they 
aren't incapable of that, then what's the point of me being online? Yeah, well, well put. Well, um, Sarah, you mentioned that it's anti-Semitism is baked into institutions. What what do you mean by that exactly? Yeah, so <laughs> it's hard to dwindle down um, and be concise about because there's just so many tangents I could go into. But a lot of modern day constructs and ideologies, even if people aren't aware of it, even if it's a semi-vestigial arm of it, have anti-Jewish sentiment baked into them. Um, even ideologies that people hold near and dear um, that govern their lives also harbor certain sentiments that um, are anti-Jewish in many respects. I will give a hopefully like a not too pointed example. Um, the college admissions system in America was literally constructed in its impetus to exclude Jewish people from admission. And these restrictive policies against Jewish people continued into the 1960s in many high profile institutions. It's why institutions like Brandeis actually were created is because there were such strict quotas on Jewish admission into American colleges. A lot of people, all people in this country venerate um, the collegiate system that we've set up. Um, and I think that it's really interesting to not see that history acknowledged. Obviously, that's expanded, of course, into other forms of bigotry against different minority groups. But anti-Jewish sentiment was its primary impotence, along with anti-Black sentiment. So it's just like a little bit of an interesting anecdote. I think that there's a lot of systemic bigotries, including anti-Semitism, that uh, kind of comprise certain hierarchies and ideas sociopolitical agendas, et cetera, um, not just in America, but kind of around the world. I don't know if you want to add anything. Okay, yeah, th thanks for elaborating on that. I, I don't want to get super into semantics, but I guess what threw me off is I, when, when I hear institutionalized that I think that it's still existing in, in institutions, when you said systemic, that to me made more sense because if the idea is that it just – there are certain stories in culture, right? That Jews are all powerful or control the world, right? This is just the common story that passes from generation to generation. So maybe it's just a difference in definitions. I would consider that perhaps to be systemic, but not necessarily institutionalized because we can't point to an institution today that still exists and, and discriminates. Unless it does exist, then I'm un unaware. of Maybe some country clubs, but uh, I think we'll be okay. Are, are Jews still discriminated against in uh, in colleges and universities? No, not not since the '60s in any meaningful capacity. Hmm. Okay. It shifted to other minority groups for sure, but right. That that was just okay. one example. There are certainly enduring institutions, but I didn't. Want so to maybe that. maybe in another session we could go and take a deep dive into into this this topic. But so would that be like the study of critical Jewish theory? Is that like a is that a a field of academics? I feel like that's what you're describing. I just haven't heard of a CJ, CJT. I'm not hearing you all of a sudden. Yeah, I can't hear you either, Sarah. Yes, yeah, Sarah, I don't know what happened. Your audio dropped. Sarah? Sarah? Wait, wait, Ellie, can you hear me? I can hear you. I can't hear Sarah. She's just talking. <laughs> she, but she can't hear us either. Oh, yeah, we can't hear you. Nothing. <laughs> um, how did that happen? Unmute yourself. Let's see. 
Say something. Say something. Yeah. If you can refresh here, I'm, I'm posting in private chat. That's never happened before. Maybe it's your headphones. Oh, she can't even hear me. I can't even give suggestions. Yeah, she. Um, can you hear now? Yeah, maybe she changes. Oh, maybe her. Can you hear me? Hmm. Let's call her. I'm calling you. Now my phone's not working. Literally, my phone's not calling. There we go. Okay. Now, Sarah, we still can't hear you. Answer your phone. Answer your phone. Hello. Hi, Sarah. Um, Hi. I, I think you on the bottom, you'll see a cam and mic. You'll see a little cam and mic button. So maybe you need to, you need to change your audio settings. Maybe your earbuds uh, died or something. Cam and mic, and then audio, you click audio. And yeah. Then, For some reason, it's not working. Wait, now you're, now you're on mute. Hold on. <laughs> Unmute yourself. Hello. Yep, still only there. So what happens when you press cam and mic? And then, <laughs> and then you click audio, and then it says mic and speaker. It says... It says it's um, AirPods. So maybe just switch it to your computer. Like switch it to, so it comes straight out of your computer. Okay, let me see. Can you hear yep, me? Yep, it's working. Yep. Okay. Sorry. Can you hear us? No, yes. good. Yeah, it happens. I guess there's an ear issue. Thank you, everybody, for your patience. Um, Sarah, I was very interested in what you were saying, but you're going to need to uh, start from the beginning. I literally forgot what we were talking about. I got distracted. Yeah, what, what, was the topic? What, what was the topic? We were talking about systems of oppression, specifically regarding anti-Semitism. Oh, uh, said, I know what I was talking should, about. I was talking about um, oh, critical, critical Jewish theory, CJT. So, yeah. There's been a lot of um, really amazing Jewish scholars and academics who have been subject to the political whims of their times or our times. And I think my positive theory is that largely because of their Jewish identity and oftentimes their Zionist identity, whether that's Emma Goldman or Albert Mami, et cetera, they've been sidelined in these very important schools of thought in spite of the fact that they were very um, prominent in helping to form and found them. So it's a whole different discussion for a different time, but um, that's basically what I was saying. Is there's okay. definitely in institutional anti-Semitism in academia? Interesting, interesting. Yeah, we we could we could deep dive on that um, on a on another session. I guess what one more one more interesting instance. How do you feel about calling the Ben and Jerry's boycott anti-Semitic? You can start, Ali. Okay, so here's my take. I don't think a boycott of the West Bank is inherently anti-Semitic. So that's what I said. That was my statement on it. That's I do still stand by that. 
Um, but looking like after a lot, like more information came out, it did seem like there was a lot of anti-Semitism involved in that whole episode. Um, the push to boycott from all of Israel, obviously. And I mean, that's, this is one other thing, like it's hard for non-Jews to understand, but like BDS and institutions is institutionalized anti-Semitism. That's the manifestation of it. That's what it is on campuses. That's how it is in practice. Um, so I, I don't, but I don't think, uh, a boycott of the West Bank is inherently anti-Semitic. So what are your thoughts? I'll try and be concise. I'm not very good at that. Um, so no, me, take, take your time. It's, you know, as long as you need to thoroughly explain. I operate off of certain universal principles of bigotry, the first of which, in my mind, is double standards. If you look at other occupied territories throughout the world, Ben and Jerry's is not boycotting any of them. I think that that, in and of itself, not saying necessarily I align with this belief, but I think that, in and of itself, is enough to make the claim that this is a bigoted action in some sense. but then again, I don't engage in whataboutism. I think that we can treat different ind- like issues on the individual level and analyze them separately. So this gets me to the distinction between theory versus praxis. Um, I think that in theory, there you can make a very strong argument that boycotting the West Bank as an idea, as a concept, is not anti-Semitic. For instance, the franchise owner, I believe, of McDonald's in Israel refuses to establish chains in the West Bank for personal political reasons. I think that that's entirely valid. The issue becomes the practical implementation of it. Aside from the fact that the board was actually calling to boycott all of Israel before they were kind of usurped by Unilever and they put out a statement saying that you know they're just going to boycott the West Bank, not all of Israel, against the express wishes of the board. Putting that part aside, for me, you cannot disconnect the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement from its anti-Semitism. It's deeply interwoven anti-Semitism that explicitly, from its leaders um, to its grassroots initiatives, calls for boycotting um, and economically strangling all of Israel. And so you can't separate that from me. And therefore, I do think that based on those two counts that I just explained, either schema, this could be considered a form of bigotry against Jewish people. That being said, I think ice cream is largely the noise. And every single time we fall for this bait where it's not actually about the ice cream and screaming about ice cream is not going to get us anywhere. It's about these underlying core anti-Jewish ideologies that are um, perpetuating certain movements and certain sentiments towards the Jewish state. So yeah, I think it's also important <laughs> to point out that the BDS movement isn't just about economics. It's about cultural and academic. It's about pushing in practice Jewish people out of spaces and institutions unless they completely abandon any connection to their ancestral lands. That's what it is. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I, th- I think there's one conversation is the concept of boycotting anti-Semitic or is BDS the organization anti-Semitic? And I think yes. there's different cases. The children have come. You, Ellie, you can you can take a few minutes to. Uh, Ellie's babysitting today. Um, I'll be back in one minute. Sorry. 
Oh, good. It's okay. I'll the take way <laughs> the way I view it. So first of all, I, I struggle a little bit with the double standard because it's it's so hard to assess if something is truly a double standard because then you need to know somebody's intention behind why they're doing something. And when it comes to boycotting, boycotting is a strategy that, for example, let's say the boycotting the West Bank has become popular. Strategically speaking, it would make more sense to join that boycott. It's not about being consistent across the board and saying, I'm now going to boycott everyone who has human rights issues because that's not going to do anything. Like boycott isn't always like a principled stance about refusing to sell certain people goods. It's about putting pressure on a, on a nation. So I, I, I feel like it's hard to assess that it's a double standard. I think Palestinian activists have successfully convinced many people to care about the Palestinian cause. And it's created a situation where Westerners, let's say, let's say, uh, uh, a white American goes to college campus. They care about social justice issues in college. They meet a Palestinian who, who taught them about the Palestinian cause that West Westerner is going to care more about the Palestinian cause than they're going to care about China because they know a Palestinian. So we accuse them of double standard at that point, but I'm not sure it's accurate or, or helpful. I, I struggle with, with double standards for that reason. I, cause I think it's hard to assess. I think that's fair. I think that it is definitely hard to assess, which is why I said I don't engage yeah. in what aboutism. And I agree. Right. Um, I, I mostly predicate my claim that it is bigoted in some capacity on the fact that it is part and parcel of what I perceive to be a bigoted movement. Um, though I do think there is certainly an argument for double standards for some people. Right. So. Okay. Okay. So another, I guess another thing about Ben and Jerry's is ultimately what Ben and Jerry's did was, was, show a form of nonviolent resistance that recognizes Israel because in boycotting only the West bank, I, I know this sounds like it's very different than how many people perceived it, but this in a sense can almost be seen as setting a positive precedent because if BDS were to say, you know what, we're not going to do a cultural and academic boycott. That doesn't make sense. Um, we're, we don't want to destroy Israel. We just, you know, want there to be a Palestinian state. Therefore we're going to put all our focus on the West Bank, that would be a way more productive BDS. It would be, it would, it's a way more legitimate form of protest. Because to, to me, it kind of seems like when Palestinians act violently, we say, look, don't, don't be violent. You know, there's other means of resistance. And then we tell them BDS, which is their main form of nonviolent resistance. We tell them that's also anti-Semitic. And it's like here they did something. It's not even BDS. It's just saying just settlements. And then we're like, that too is anti-Semitic. My concern, my concern is that we just want Palestinians, not we, but that many just want Palestinians to just sit down and shut up and any, anything they're going to do, we're just going to call them out on it. So it's like we, we need to give like an effect, a legitimate form of protest than what Ben and Jerry's did. Whether you think it's going to be effective, whether you think it's consistent, right, this is all up for debate. But I, I think that it deserves legitimacy. It should be seen as legitimate, at least. I... I will continue to disagree with you, but I do see your perspective. Um, That's what we're all about. 
I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, 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 very, I'm very happy yeah, you don't I agree think, with me. I think it's, <laughs> it's um, insidious to pretend that BDS is just what, not even Ben and Jerry's, it's really what Unilever did because Ben and Jerry's wasn't the ones that made the decision. I think it's it's insidious to pretend that um, that BDS is just about a boycott of West Bank products, businesses. That oh, they're not. Business. Today they're not. Right, I agree. Yeah, I so I think that um, in in reality, what BDS wants and its goal, which they've stated explicitly, it's on their website, is Jews out of academia unless they're willing to give up their ties to their to their ethnic homeland. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. Right. Okay. And someone tried to I, I forgot the exact comment, but someone gave it, it Iran as an example in the sanctions on Iran. But that's that's exactly back to the point. Nobody's telling. Iranian people, you can't practice your culture. You can't say that you're Persian and you can't practice, you can't say that you're from your homeland. They're going after the country. But I mean, it's not the exact comparison, but kind of like there is no other movement like this to push an ethnic group out of institutions. I I agree. I don't think you'll you'll see a situation where Chinese uh, people are are being treated under the guise of like anti-China sentiment and that that would be accepted in the mainstream. Yes, sir. Did you want to say something? I will just say if anyone has um, questions or hesitations about the anti-Semitism of BDS, I would just look at primary quotes from their leaders. Um, These are not my words or my own thoughts. It's theirs that are explicitly anti-coexistence and again, anti-Jewish sovereignty in any part of the land. Um, But I, and again, I will just end my thoughts by saying theory versus practice. I think there's a strong theoretical argument for boycotting the West Bank. And I would certainly like the McDonald's franchise owner who very much because of his political beliefs does not open up chains there. I would completely understand that perspective and that sentiment, but when it's part of a broader movement that has certain ideas and persons attached to it, I have serious issues. I hear that. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, I, I think this is a good little trio panel because there's differences, <laughs> there's agreements, all respectful. I mean, that's, that's the premise of, of this channel. So I'm, I'm, I'm great to see it. It's great to see it happening. Um, Let's let's take some audience questions. I see chats lively. By and large, respect for the day. I saw a little a little hate, just a little bit. It's okay. <laughs> I mean, you should see what happens when we're talking Israel Palestine stuff like that. Yeah, hit <laughs> real quick. Um, give us questions. Obviously, we'll prioritize super chats. I actually did see a super chat I didn't get to. Uh, near maybe that was you. If you could retype your question, obviously you don't need to super chat it again. Uh, I'll I'll read it off. By the way, if, if you want to get in touch with Ellie or Sarah, you could find their contact information in the in the chat. I know they're always happy to engage, always happy to answer yeah. questions. As you can see, they're very much educators. They're willing to take the time to educate. They won't yell at you if you don't know something. So yeah. everything I out. say, um, and I know everything Ellie says as well, is very much backed by historical sources. Um, so if you want any of those, I'm happy to provide and also just answer any questions and DM. Um. 
So this is an interesting concept. So fungi, fungi in the car goes, Iran is a dictatorship. You can't go after Iranians who are more persecuted by their regime than anyone else in the world by Iran. Israel is a democracy. China is a dictatorship too. So that, essentially what you're saying is that targeting Israelis is not the same as targeting Chinese because Israelis have the right to vote. So in targeting them, you're going to pressure them into making better voting decisions. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it, I think it's a legitimate distinction. I, I still quite, I still don't think it's a legitimate form of activism to target, to target people. Um, a, because you, you don't know what they believe. You're assuming their, their views based off uh, the country they're from, right? So there needs to be a group. It involves a group assumption. And then there's a question of, is that an effective way to actually get people to vote for better leaders? It seems like the more, the, the more isolated, I, I don't think Israel is isolated now, but it, I don't think an isolated Israel is going to make a more open-minded population. I think it's going to do the exact opposite. So I think that's the question we should ask ourselves when uh, when deciding how, how to engage with Israelis. I also don't really think it's um, as much of a distinction as he's saying in the sense that I'm my only nationality is American. Um, I take zero responsibility for anything that the Trump administration did. I did not vote for him. Um, and I think that there's a difference between certain mechanisms to hold your government accountable through elections um, and also like being held responsible for everything they do and say. It's a very different um, kind of set of interactions that I would be very careful to conflate or not conflate. Casimir uh, also explained an important distinction. Uh, yeah, I think this is a good point. Um, the people in Iran and China are primarily supportive of their governments. Uh, so you're saying, so you're saying even if you don't wait, but so it's Casimir's making the point that they sh just because they don't have the right to vote doesn't mean anything because they support their governments. Casimir, I do think that you're not implying that you think we could target individuals. You're just saying it's the distinction is not as great as as made out to be. I think right? they were disagreeing with the person whose comment I responded to you before, but did it very poorly. Also, this comes back uh -oh, to anything, is that anything under the sun being compared to Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. Right. Yeah. Okay, let's... Um, Let me. Uh, Israel question. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm looking. So, no, there was one from Nir. If you see a question you want to bring up, let me know here from Nir. Nir, thanks for the super chat. Um, Nir asked, do you think that the rise in anti Semitism in North America ties directly to Israel's policy in regards to the Palestinians? Can I no. That? No. <laughs> First of all, the. I think there's a lot of people who will tell you that. Um, and I think it's a mischaracterization of the phenomenon. Number one, to say that in terms of like a logical connective series is victim blaming. Um, in many senses, it's saying that people bring their own misfortune onto themselves, which is not true. Um, but more importantly, uh, I think that this elides the fact that there's a lot of misinformation and propaganda surrounding what Israel's actions actually are. And it is that misinformation and that propaganda 
that largely fuels people to take certain actions against Jewish people in diaspora and in Israel. For instance, all of the claims that Israelis, um, i.e. Jews, going to the Temple Mount to pray on our holiest day, being perpetuated by people, even like Rashida Taleb, that we are somehow storming Al-Aqsa Mosque by trying to pray at our holy site, coming unironically, by the way, from the people who are saying that they want one state with equal rights. Um, that's propaganda and very dangerous misinformation that does lead to violence. Um, and so I think that that's important to point out too when you're trying to parse out why there's been a rise. Ellie, is there something you wanted to add? Yeah, I think a lot of it comes from actually people's ignorance on actual policy. And especially like one thing I noticed in, in the West is that it's often too complex for people to actually get into policy. They couldn't name you a person in the Knesset. Ask them, like someone saying, oh, I'm just criticizing the government. Ask them, name five people in the Knesset. Criticizing the government, you should be able to name five people in the Knesset. Chances are, if they're coming from such an anti-Semitic place, there's a good chance they won't even be able to do just that. But um, I think it's often people's ignorance on actual Israeli policy, actual um, what is actually going on on the ground that leads them to just go for the low-hanging fruit of attacking Jews, of attacking Jewish history, of just denying Jewish history altogether. And instead of actually trying to implement policy change, just trying to get Jews to abandon their connection to their homeland, because it's something that they can physically do. They can physically go after Jews. It's a lot harder to actually get people... Um, to change, uh, to have an implementation change in actual policy. It's a lot easier for someone to sit on their phone and just harass Jews all day. Exactly. So I, I want to give a, maybe a slightly different perspective. I think on the question is, does Israel's policies fuel anti-Semitism? That, that's, if you're just asking that as like a, a question, I think we see that every time that there is, Israel is in, there's an escalation of violence between Israel and the Palestinians, that anti-Semitism increases. We see that there seems to be a direct correlation. I think, it's also, I think it's anti-Semitic attacks increase. Because the anti-Semitism is there, it's underlying in society. Misinformation right. and anti-Semitism spread rampantly, like we saw this past time, but I don't think it's... So I, I would actually, th I would actually think it's both. And the, the reason I think this, I think that people have like an innate uh, drive to group generalize. So like just a, another example, we saw that during COVID anti-Asian attacks rose, right? Again, this is and anybody who uses Israel's actions to justify hate towards Jews. That's obviously wrong. That's obviously victim blaming. But on the question of does does Israel, like if you're just asking out as a question, I think that legitimately you could say yes, because people conflate Israel with Jews. Um, this is obviously anti-Semitic, but I think it's it's not false to make that claim. The question is, why are we making that claim, right? So if somebody's if somebody's going to bring up that anti-Semitism increases when, um, when Israel attacks Gaza, I would question what the relevance of that claim is, right? If you're using it to legitimize the attacks happening on Jews, then that's obviously unacceptable. If it's more like just like a curiosity type question, then I think it's it's legitimate. Does that does that kind of like are we are we in agreement on, on that, or you don't? Know, 
Do you not fully see it that way? I think we're largely in agreement. If I'm interpreting you correctly, I think we're largely. Yeah. yeah. Once a question of does it play a, a role? Yes. Is it legitimate? By no means, no. Right. Um, yeah, this was actually something that I, I didn't get to speak to Norman Finkelstein about, but it's something I saw him do. And I think maybe in our next conversation, I'm going to bring it up. But he he very much said um, when Jews are being attacked uh, during the Gaza uh, operation, that's not anti-Semitism. That's responding to Israel. So that's obviously, to me, seems like a, a double standard of his, because if if someone were to attack an Asian because of China, people would agree that's that's a form of anti-Asian racism, right? So it's like, why is there even a question when it when it comes to Israel? Um, any other questions we see? Um, yeah, I'm getting a lot of heat. <laughs> it's okay. What's going on? Are people hating? <laughs> it's okay. I'll live. Don't worry. I'm Israel. Hi. I'm Sarah. Hi. Um, yeah, don't, don't be mean. Don't be mean, Chad. <laughs> But I, I just want to be clear. Everything I say, um, everything I say is historically backed, and I would be happy to support it with more detailed sources if you ask me for them and do them. Shai goes, thanks for the fifteen shekels, Shai. Why are you not accusing Israel of it as anti-Semitic? I mean, it, it claims to be a land for all the Jews. Wouldn't that make it philo-Semitic, <laughs> if anything? I mean, look, I would say I would say confidently that Israel is a philo-Semitic state, and whether we want to sit, <laughs> no, is that unacceptable? Why? We, it's it's a it's a state that prefers Jews. Sounds like philo-Semitism. No, it's a state that guarantees Jews equal rights to those guaranteed to all other peoples, or that should be in a perfect world. And so it's not philo-Semitic, it's just treating Jews as human, which is not something that the whole world order is accustomed uh, but to not, uh, Yeah, it's a little bit more than that, because it's like, you know, their symbolism is Jewish, our institutions are Jewish, um, only we have the right for Aliyah. You know, there's certain things that, there's certain I mean, Jewish... that's something that's seen that, across the world in different countries. I don't right, think it's, it's not something well, right. Jewish people. No, no, for sure. I'd say, like, Germany is pro-German. Like if there's a word for philo Germanic, then Germany's philo philo German. <laughs> I, 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 I think, think I, no, the conversion I, is philo Semitic is like a whole like psychological construct in and of itself. Oh, um, is, is it pronounced philo philo Semitic, not philo? It's philo. I've heard it both ways. I think uh, I probably okay. pronounced it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> philo Semitic flows better off my tongue. So until somebody can tell me that's wrong, I'll I'll, I'll uh, continue. So I I, I guess I, I know why you, why you um. Well, you're rejecting the premise because philo-Semitism is considered to be a form of anti-Semitism, right? So if I say that Israel is philo-Semitic, then I'm saying Israel is anti-Semitic. So that's that's the pushback? Yeah. Maybe, yes, essentially, in essence. <laughs> Can we talk about, like, so I was in China. I had a great time there. Um, and I would be in business meetings. And when they'd find out I was Jewish, they would all... Uh, get excited and say, oh, you're very smart. You know, they'd want to do business with me because I was Jewish. I enjoyed that. Like, I thought that was cool. Can we, no. can, can <laughs> but I, I know you feel differently. Can we talk about the, the negative sides of, of philo-Semitism? Uh, 
100%. I think about this all the time. It's actually, it's funny that I feel like um, Asian Americans have come up a few times because I think it's sort of an intersection to sometimes what they face is it's part and parcel oftentimes. Obviously there's like Christian philosemitism, which is like a whole other thing, but it's part and parcel of this model minority myth where we are also, again, held to different standards and different expectations that play into a certain um, perspective of Jews that is detached from reality and therefore harmful in many respects. But Ali, I'll let you speak. I know um, you have a lot to say on this. And the philosemite? Yeah, I feel like we were talking about this the other day. Yeah, we were talking about it the other day. I, I mean, I kind of understood it as, like, having an obsession with Jews. Mm, interesting. And, like, coming from, like, almost, like, a creepy obsession. Not just, like, oh, wow, like, I think very highly of, like, Jewish people, which can be, like, a very nice compliment. Like, oh, I've had very good experiences in the Jewish community. Like, I think highly of Jewish people. I, I always understood it as to be, like, more of, like, a creepy obsession. Okay, interesting. Interesting. Um, yeah, for, I I, per, I took it as a form of flattery in the in the way I experienced it, but I I definitely hear um, I, I I hear the case being made. Um, yeah, I think I always see. also understood it as like a non-Jewish phenomenon, which is why I would never agree that the state of Israel is a philosophy. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Philosemitics. <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was just a funny. That that was just uh, we're just having fun with that. Someone asked a good question. So Matthew K, how damaging to Israel security do you think social justice warriors can be in spreading inflammatory criticism of Israel? Personally, I don't worry about Israel's borders. I'm not not because I don't think that there are actual threats like Hezbollah, Iran, for example, but because that's not my job. I'm not here to defend Israel's borders. That's what Israel has a government and an army for. But I do think that they are very damaging to diaspora communities. And I think that's where we're going to see the most impact to them long term. So I want to build on this and also connect it to a question that someone else asked, which was related to Jewish identity. So your second question, Matthew, is how do we change the narrative amongst these people? kind of an axiom of my advocacy that I think is really, really important um, is you can't understand Jewish movements without understanding Jewish identity. A lot of people have no idea what it means to be a part of the Jewish people. A lot of people don't know our history in the slightest. And quite truthfully, it's not really their job to, but it kind of becomes an obligation of theirs when they start to have very strong opinions about our fate um, and about what it means to be Jewish. Um, it's something that just kind of is a tangent. Something that's really interesting to me is like a lot of the times it's people who find out they have like one Jewish great grandparent who are so insistent that being Jewish is somehow just a religion. And I'm like, those two things can't coexist. Like we are a tribal tradition and indigenous people who originate from one place and we're sent into exile. It's something that I talk about at length with people before I even bridge the concept of Jewish sovereignty um, and self-determination. Cause if you don't understand Jews, then you don't really understand our movements. Um, that being said, I think that's how we change the narrative is like letting people understand who we are, where we come from, what our culture is. And I think Ellie's spot on here, which is that these people who are spreading propaganda in the West, um, I'm not convinced all of them realize what they're being mouthpieces for. Again, I give people the benefit of the doubt, but I do think it's incredibly damaging to Jews in diaspora and 
in tandem to that, it props up and gives legitimacy for ideologies that are incredibly harmful for Jews in Israel. Um, and so I, I do see them to, as a security threat in the sense of diaspora safety specifically, because um, we're not protected in the same ways, but also it's an enduring security threat for Israel as a collective because it does propagate um, certain very scary and insidious ideologies further. Um, and then, yeah, I think that that's a good answer. Adara, I don't know if you have anything to add there. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for the super chat, Matthew K. Um, I will, th I think Western activists, and who, those who watch the channel know I'm quite critical of the SJW uh, form of activism, but I'll, t I'll say it this way. I think that one of the things that we need to figure out if we want to have peace on this land is to see how we get Palestinians to accept Israel's right to exist. Okay, this has been one of our greatest challenges since day one. The majority just never have ex accepted that fact. It's still in their mind Israel is um, a settler colonial state and they must keep resisting until Israel no longer exists. So anybody interested in solving the conflict needs to say, okay, well, how do we convince Palestinians to accept Israel's right to exist? Or how do we find a solution that doesn't include Israel existing? Now, if you want to take the latter option, the, um, the amount of the attempt in doing so is way more likely to quash Palestinian national aspirations than it is to kill the Jewish state. The, the attempt to destroy the Jewish state continuously has continuously harmed Palestinians more than it, is, than it has harmed Israelis. This is obviously not the right approach. It's a failed strategy. It's been failing since day one. And I think Western activists have now very much normalized the idea of dismantling Israel. I think that's very bad because it just strengthens the narrative that ultimately at the end of the day is going to harm Palestinians more than it's going to harm Israelis. So I don't think that it's damaging to Israel's security. I think it's damaging Palestinian national aspirations more than anything. So I think that people who care about, you know, Palestinian national aspirations um, need to start bringing the conversation down to reality. And that is one where Israel won't be dismantled. And if you feel like Israel needs to be transformed um, and you're using dismantled and transformed interchangeably, well, I'd say then use the terminology transformed because dismantling sounds like uh, the, the destruction of the Jewish state. So that's how I look at it. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, uh, there's a lot I could add. I think we're at a really interesting time in the information age and history where the story is kind of yet to be told, the real impact that people who are expressing a lot of information through social media are going to have will there be i think we'll really see in five to ten years what the minds who have been shaped by social media are going to take into the political realm or um the actual like developed social realm outside of these platforms i don't think we can really tell but i think a lot of jewish advocates and advocates in general are operating under the premise that this is an important information sharing space and one that can really have the power to change minds. Um, and so 
I think that these SJWs might have an institutional impact in five to 10 years. Um, on some fronts, when they have really well-placed and well-meaning ideologies, I think it's a great thing. Um, and on other fronts where they're very misinformed about certain people and certain world affairs, I think it's a very harmful thing. This kind of also, I don't want to go too far into a tangent, but it's something that I did want to bring up into this conversation. Every person who is not connected to this conflict in any capacity, and by any capacity, I mean including an intellectual learned capacity, who feels the need to and or compulsion to and or right to weigh in on what the fate of Jews and Palestinians in the land should be, I think is acting under a very colonial um, mindset and premise where they see us very much as the heathens and they can prescribe for us what Jewish sovereignty should look like, what Palestinian sovereignty should look like, and they feel the need to meddle um, in our affairs in ways that are often because of their ill-informed nature um, and inflammatory nature because these people who are sitting in the suburbs hundreds of miles away are really like emotionally benefiting from this engagement and they're socially benefiting. This goes into a whole conversation about Jewish tokenism as well that I won't get into right now. But for people who aren't impacted by this conflict in any personal capacity, there's a lot of benefit um, to weighing in socially and emotionally, not the case for people whose lives are at stake or whose families' lives are at stake. And I think it's really important to note that like a lot of the time, the way people in the West or in the surrounding Arab countries engage with the Jews and the Palestinians is very colonial in nature um, and very uh, harmful in its practice. So I just want to add that in there too. Yeah, to add on to that, I think there's also, I mean, I kind of like lost a few minutes, but I heard the last part about tokenism, which I wanted to add on to. I think there's also this like, in the West, like people love their echo chambers. They love to be reaffirmed in their own beliefs. So I think they'll kind of, what I see, see a lot is they'll take like a Jew who literally will say, I don't want to be Jewish anymore. Um, <laughs> we all know who I am. Um, yeah, I was gonna say, cause I want to like point people to him, but yeah. So they'll take a Jewish person who literally says, I don't want to be Jewish anymore and I'm anti-Zionist and replace that for an Israeli, like a typical Israeli perspective, but convince themselves that they're getting this both sides of the story Sorry, I'm yelling in the background. But they'll convince themselves that they're getting like both sides of the story. Oh, I'm hearing on both perspectives because this guy was born a Jew. So obviously that's the other perspective, even though they said they don't want to be Jewish anymore. And that's obviously not a typical Israeli um, perspective. But there's definitely a lot of tokenism that goes on. And I think it's interesting how like, obviously like, like um, Bernie was like the most like left wing candidate. No, let me go. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not gonna give me two I'm minutes. Gonna... <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. We take take your time, Ellie. Uh, the children come first. Sorry, one second. No problem. So adorable. So, what you said about people not being able to tell us how to be sovereign, I'm not fully. I don't fully agree to that because. Some versions of sovereignty could be against human rights, for example. So it's like the world is allowed to speak on a nation's sovereignty if they're infringing on people's rights. That, yes, that is not the claim that I'm making. I'm 
claiming that people who come in with their westernized pluralistic values um, right. very ill-informed sentiments about the conflict who feel like they can take their and their friends' opinion over that of Jews, Israelis, Palestinians, and Palestinians in the diaspora um, are operating from a moral self-gratification slash colonial imperialist sentiment. Um, that's more of my claim. And I've seen it play out in real time where people think their value system is appropriate um, when it's oftentimes not. But yes, I agree. I mean, people who right. Okay, people I, can I make informed conflicts. Or, sorry, people can make informed comments when they're well informed on the conflict. <laughs> right. Yeah. Look, let's be honest. Most activists don't know anything. They, they don't know what the hell they're talking about about um, about most issues. Right. They just know the what to post, what to say. Um, that that doesn't mean that there aren't activists that are non-Jewish, non from the region that are very knowledgeable and can give an informed opinion. Exactly. Right. Okay. Cool. Shai Levy killing it with the super chats. Thank you so much. Um, Shai goes, if Israel is a state of the Jews, then it's your responsibility as well. Unless you distance yourself from it. Germany is land of its citizens, not all Germans. Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to fully understand that. But it, look, Israel stating that is, Israel as a nation can state it's it's the land of the Jews, but that doesn't make it instantly the responsibility of all Jews. That's just saying that Israel has a right to determine somebody else's uh, priorities and values. Unless I'm misunderstanding you, Shai, but if that's what you're saying, then I'm, I, I don't agree. Did, did you take it that way, uh, Sarah Nelly, or did you? So Sorry, I, I think it was like the last couple minutes. Um, I took it as kind of what you were speaking about earlier, which is that like the Zionism is an inherent part of Judaism. And then we ask Jews in the diaspora to not be conflated with the actions of Israel. Oh. Um, but again, I, I think we kind of unpacked that, like lo the logical fallacy of that earlier. Um, and why it's a bit problematic, though I'd be happy to repeat it. I also think it's really important too. a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about the aspirations of Israel. Um, it is meant to, yes, be a Jewish state, but also have equal rights for all of its non-Jewish citizens. And I think it's really important to name the fact that in the region today, Israel is literally the only state that has Jews and Arabs coexisting in any numbers within it. It's also the only state um, that has a growing Christian population. And so I don't mean to like um, sound like I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I just, I think that it's something that's often not said out loud. That's really important to name a lot of the um, ideas about Israel um, microscopically focus on it in the region and completely allied Mizrahi history um, and like the history of Jews throughout the region throughout the centuries. So I just have to add that in. I want to just answer, because I feel like this question is kind of pointing me, how does the point of theory versus actual implement implementation on BDS not also apply to Zionism? So what I was saying about BDS in theory, there is no only boycott of settlement BDS in theory. The theory is an academic, cultural, etc. boycott, which is the expulsion of Jewish people from academia unless they're willing to give up institutions, unless they're willing to give up any ties to Israel. So it's in theory and in implementation. It's pretty stated pretty explicitly. 
Cool. Um, yeah, Shai, I see you wrote a, a follow-up. Yeah, so we did just, we, we unpacked that a little bit earlier that I, I said that I think that it gets confusing for many people because we say that it's a state for Jews and then people can conflate uh, Judaism with Israel. We, we, we spoke about that. I, I think it's, it's legit that people get confused, but we should educate them why that's wrong nonetheless. I think that's the uh, TLDR of our, of our uh, conversation. Um, Thomas Resnick, $5. Thank you so much, Tom. Good to see you in the chat. Why can't Israel be an Israeli state? Um, I need to think about that. Maybe, maybe it can be. I don't think it would solve the conflict, though, because Palestinians don't acknowledge an Israeli state. It's still, I need to. I need to hear more about what, you, what you're proposing, actually, uh, Thomas. I, it's hard for me to make a judgment. Do, do either of you have thoughts on that? I'm not quite sure what he's um, getting at, so I won't answer until yeah. he, like maybe I will explain it. Yeah, maybe not be a state for yeah. Not be a state for the Jews, but be a state for actual Israelis. I think it is. Um, I don't know. I, get, I think Thomas. Yeah, go, go ahead. So, I was just gonna. I was gonna say that I think Thomas's uh, objection is um, is quite common because one of the reasons why people struggle with Israel again because it it does still prefer Jews, right? It's like. We, we, we need to acknowledge that. It prefers Jews, and some people just are not going to accept a country that prefers Jews when there's other inhabitants living living in that country who have been immigrate there, right? They've been there for a very long time. So I think that's that's what he's doing. Okay, I see. You want to say anything on it, or should we? So... There's a lot of different directions it can go. I think my kind of underlying understanding that I'm operating under is that it is an Israeli state. Um, there's a lot of polls that come out from Israel itself that say most Arabs living inside of Israel identify as Arab Israeli. Um, I don't know how much you want to like talk about polling data. There's a lot of flaws with it, but I think that there is no um, issue between having. Um, non-Jews in the Jewish state. It's meant to be pluralistic. It's meant to be democratic. And even if that's not perfectly actualized, as it's not perfectly actualized anywhere in the world, um, I certainly think that's something to strive for and something that's possible. And maybe also another, um, actually, I was, I'm was i not going to open Pandora's box two hours into this thing. I've, I've learned. From I mean, that. I'm game for anything. I've been drinking coffee. <laughs> no, I'm not even sure if it's something that we would even be in disagreement about. It's just there's too too too, ma- too many layers to to that uh, this this late in the conversation. Um, Ali, so when you 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 started saying something when the kids came, did did you want to finish that point? Then we could start wrapping it up. I think it was about tokenism, and I think that's where I was going on about about tokenism and then i mean i don't remember what the sentence i was exactly saying was but it's interesting that right then somebody brought up in the comments orthodox jews specifically said haredim which is a massive umbrella for whoever doesn't know i grew up orthodox yeshivish very religious my family still is um that's a community that i live in 
they're very much Zionist. Usually when people say anti the Orthodox anti-Zionist Jews, they mean Sotmer and Nisriakarta, but once they say Orthodox right. is a huge umbrella term, you can already tell they don't know what they're talking about. Um, it's usually the Nisriakarta they're tokenized, obviously, as opposed to Sotmer, because they're the ones that go out protesting the same 10 people. And I think it's also a bit interesting how, like, there are so many non-progressive ideologies within the Nisriakarta ideology, very anti-LGBTQ, a lot of misogynistic views, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on and on. Um, and people are willing to brush that all away in order to have those tokens. I think it speaks to like this larger, this like larger phenomenon of how much people want to have like their echo chambers validated by tokenization of Jewish people rather than like actually hear other perspectives. And I will just say to that point too, you know, First of all, I think that um, the notion that underlies tokenism, which is that the mainstream opinion of a certain group must be uh, like so. Okay, I, I won't mince words. I think that, um, you know, this idea that Zionism is somehow a hateful and racist and. Um, evil ideology is underlined by anti-Jewish sentiment in and of itself. Oftentimes it's accompanied by uh, claims that we're all part of a certain propaganda outlet, that we have been brainwashed by our own community, that we can't think for ourselves, that we're acting on behalf of a evil government, etc. And I think that that's incredibly harmful that people won't even trust Jewish people about what is a fundamental part of like our communal identity, which is longing for a homeland. And so um, tokenism in this respect, and I've seen it play out on college campuses in the progressive spaces that I'm often a part of, um, is often very predatory. It like people who are Jewish oftentimes have very uh, progressive aspirations about how the world should look with equal rights for everyone. And um, there are nefarious actors who will come in and prey on impressionable young Jewish minds to kind of um, get them to, I guess, um, have mistaken beliefs even about their own community. Like I think someone wrote an article a few months ago about like the Jewish summer camp um, sort of like lie that's been spread around that we all go to Jewish summer camp and get brainwashed and stuff. So it's just like very interesting to see who is tokenized, who is repeatedly tokenized, uh, what groups share the Jewish tokens um, and kind of like what comes out of being tokenized. A lot of people come back after they realize the way that they've been um, kind of manipulated and used. So it's, it's very interesting, but yeah. Yeah, I think there's also something to speak to like the, we were talking about this before Sarah, the reward system that is set up for Jews who are anti-Zionist um, and the way they're kind of encouraged that there's this like moral superiority to all other Jews for like speaking out on this brainwashing that we've all gone through as like young ones in yeshiva or whatever people went to. Um, and yeah, I, and this is the this is the promise of anti-Semitism, right? I think it's really insidious to get back to a more broad thematic note that's not related to Israel and Zionism. Um, the way that anti-Semitism functions it is not and has never been a baseless hatred. I think that's really important to explicitly name. It's always part 
of a moralized socio-political process that at its logical end promises the salvation of society at the expense of or destruction of the Jew. And I think that, um, you know, it, a lot of people um, don't understand how anti-Semitism might be a part of their ideologies and political movements because um, it's not often explicit and it's not always named. So I will leave it at that, but yeah. Great. Um, so yeah, we're closing in on two hours. I guess we could move to just some final thoughts and then then wrap it up. We, we do have a habit of um, doing an after party on Discord. I know people are going to want to do it. If you want to join, if you two still have time and want to join, even if it's just for a little bit, I know the community would be happy to speak to you. Um, anyways, I, I'm going to drop a Discord link Discord. in the... Okay. I don't ever have Discord, but I'll drop. <laughs> You got to try. Yeah, this is a, there's a first time for everything. Any final thoughts or things you want to share, something you want to plug, um, anything? Yeah, I'll let Ali um, end up the podcast. So I'll go first. Well, let me, um, we like retext. I'm just going to quickly look over. We were texting before like a bunch of different thoughts. We had a lot of topics we wanted to cover. Yeah. So <laughs> I guess now we talk about this all the time. So I want to I want to propose something. Why don't we turn this into a more regular occurrence? Maybe we start it like once a month. You two become the regular uh, anti-Semitic specialist. No, that doesn't sound right. That sounds you're an anti-Semitic who's also whatever specialist on anti-Semitism. Once a month, we do a little chat. Maybe we could bring a few other people into the mix every week, have some, every session, have some guests. Uh, we find a cool name for it, whatever we call this series. I know I'm putting you on the spot. It's like, it's like proposing, it's proposing to someone in public, they're pressured to say yes. So, uh, but you don't need to tell me now. I just think I'd, I'd be I happy will, to do this. I will, I will think about it. Um, <laughs> what was I going to say? I will let Ellie, Ellie, is there any topic that we didn't cover that you want to cover today? And if this becomes a second time thing or whatnot, um, we can cover it there. But I'll like quickly this, run through it. Um, there was a Holocaust inversion, which I talk about all the time. Oh, yeah. We, 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 my, we could, I think, I we think could spend own. a few minutes on it. I mean, yeah. we did we did a full, me, me and Norm did a full, a full discussion about that last week. Um, but yeah, we, so, could, we could go more into it. I think my biggest, <laughs> this is a side joke, Ellie, but I think my biggest um, achievement in Jewish advocacy has been telling Ellie the word Holocaust inversion. <laughs> She's done such a good job in like explaining it to the people and really getting it out there is a really important concept. So I will take no credit for any of it other than the fact that we did have a conversation about this before she started testing so. Well, I, I want to take it even further. One of the reasons I decided to uh, speak to Norman about Holocaust conversion was something Ellie posted on my uh, tweet. So uh, it, it, it continues. Your impact <laughs> continues. Um, what was I going to say? Well, Ellie's gone. No, She's Ellie's based. back. So I will let her. She's the new expert. What was on that? This, so I want... Um, if you want to explain Holocaust inversion. Yeah, so Holocaust inversion is the inversion of reality. The Israelis are cast as the new Nazis, quote unquote, and the Palestinians as the new Jews. And those who object to the, sorry, it's in the background. 
Kids are so cute. I'm sorry. They want to go outside really badly. Um, and anyone who objects to those aversions are told that they're at, they're acting in bad faith and only trying to deflect from valid quote unquote criticism of Israel. Um, and this is a quote from a doctor. He's incredible, and it's a whole much excerpt from like a much longer essay. But I'll just read it quickly because um, it's always applicable. I found this always to be applicable. The motivations of Holocaust inverters are manifold. Some aim at the destruction of Israel and seek to lay the infrastructure for its moral delegitimization through demonization. Some are extreme pro-Arabs, others anti-Semites, yet others know little about the Holocaust, the Nazis, and contemporary Israel. For Europeans, it is also an effective way to cover up for Holocaust crimes of their countries and expunge guilt by claiming that what was done by the Nazi perpetrators and their many collaborators is a common phenomenon and by now is practiced by Israelis and Jews. So... To quote Deborah Lipsat, she says it's a false comparison which elevates by a factor of resilient and any wrong any wrongdoings as well may have done in lessons by a factor of resilient what the Germans did. So, and then there's so many examples. And um, okay, interesting. Yeah, I yeah. think I think did, it's did a you, very well. No, go for it. No, I was going to say that. Um, I don't know if you got saw my conversation with with Norman last. It was exactly a week ago, but. He did engage in a fair amount of Holocaust inversion, but he ultimately he acknowledged that he thinks that it shouldn't be done, that it that it's that it's wrong, which was pretty interesting. He st- he still did engage in it, but he ultimately acknowledged that it shouldn't be done. So, you see, guys, even Nor- even Norman Finkelstein agrees that. I have just for the record let it be stated i have a lot of problems with his um ideology and line of thought i will listen to your conversation but he is oh, one of sure. my least favorite uh, tokenized figures in this sphere for yeah, many reasons i can i can i can understand uh why i can understand why uh you feel that way about him <laughs> um, um what was i gonna say yeah, but on the note of Holocaust inversion, I do want to say that not only is it really psychologically manipulative on the front that it tells a lot of lies about not just what the Jewish people endured, but what the Palestinians um, have been experiencing right now. It's also really psychologically abusive um, in the sense that it re-traumatizes Jewish people um, by making them uh, <laughs> like harken back to these awful memories that we were told about growing up from our grandparents or from like our collective trauma. And it um, darbos in my senses, it reverses the victim and the offender um, to create a really, really difficult um, web of lies to unpack. And I, will, I, I honestly think it merits a whole um, conversation in and of itself because it's becoming so increasingly commonplace with the memory of the Holocaust kind of being washed away to time, which is something that we should work to combat. Um, But also with uh, people engaging in more propagandistic news outlets about what's going on in the region right now. Well stated. Um, Cool. So let's, let's do final thoughts and then we'll wrap it up and whoever wants can go to the after party. Ellie, what's on your mind? Yeah. No, I would just add on to like the the concept of Holocaust version. I could talk about it for literally hours, but I think there's this like insidious kind of like not expectation isn't the right word, but that like our genocide was supposed to be like this wonderful teaching moment for us that we're supposed to like, oh, 
great idea. Like, wow, we just came out of a genocide. Like, what can we possibly, like, what lessons can we take class? Like, as if it's this, um, this like nice little like, oh, moment that we had that we like learned a cute little lesson from and not this massive genocide that wiped out two thirds of Jews on a continent. Um, and it's this really insidious, like almost trying to like, because obviously like, I mean, I think we can all recognize that like Holocaust trauma is something like intergenerational trauma. There's a lot of like effects that last in families. I know from my own family and like the the lasting effects. And it's almost like an attempt to silence that and like not even let us speak to that. And I think it's this, um, this, it also constitutes this attempt to portray Jews as the ultimate oppressors, because our history obviously doesn't speak to that. So it's an attempt to take, kind of take away our history. I think there's different tropes that are applied to each diaspora group in these attempts to erase our history, rewrite our history, weaponize our history against us, which is also a whole nother topic. But um, it's, it's like this, this, part of a bigger attempt to not allow our history to be our own to tell. Completely agree. Um, final thoughts, Sarah. Yeah, I'm actually gonna plug something in my final thoughts um, when I wrap cool. up in a few sentences. So I spoke earlier about how when we're combating anti-Semitism, what we're actually doing is fighting for the Jewish people and our continued survival. And so with that said, I also made the claim that I fully and ardently believe because I've seen it be effective in changing hearts and minds that you cannot understand Jewish movements without understanding identity, our identity, our collective identity, our indigenous identity. And so I encourage everyone, even if you don't wanna get immersed in the politics of what's happening right now, to take some time and learn about Jewish origins, Jewish roots, the Jewish collective, even if you're not Jewish. Um, I think it's uh, really amazing that we as Jews get to carry the sacred torch and share the story with our world um, around us and hopefully work to make it a better place inspired by our values and our history in some capacity. So that's my message that I will leave everyone with. I'm actually also have a podcast um, where we kind of honor this very unprecedented time in Jewish history. It's the ingathering of the exiles. The diaspora is kind of closing in on itself. And we've taken this knowledge and this culture synergistically from all corners of the world, even in the worst times of persecution. Um, and I think it's important not to lose that. And so what we're doing on this podcast, which is called the Chai podcast, for those who don't know, Chai is part of the phrase Am Yisrael Chai, which means the people of Israel or the nation of Israel lives. Um, and so it's basically meant to honor our strength, our survival, our resilience, talking about not only individual stories of um, strength and migration to wherever they are now, but also talking about diaspora histories more broadly um, and certain political challenges today. So uh, I hope everyone will listen to it. We're coming out with season two in like a few weeks. We have some really cool speakers lined up for that. And then I'm also going to plug... I won't plug that now. I have some other things to plug in the near future, but it's really been a pleasure speaking with you all here. Um, sure. And, and Sarah, if you want to send me a link to that, I could I could add it to the description so people could find it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, cool. but it's really Great. been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, th th thank you both. Take time. Think about my offer of making this a once a month uh, ordeal. Start thinking of a, of a name. Um, I want to bring up one final comment by Adam Albilia. Adam goes, the cast today is comprised of awesome, beautiful people and Adar. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate that. I, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, so just, 
Yeah. F final thoughts on, on my end. I, I think this was a very productive conversation. I think, I think disp despite our disagreements, we were able to engage on this topic truly in good faith. And when we saw we disagreed, we both, we all were able to explain our perspective and leave it at that. And I want to emphasize this point because I don't think you always need to, when there's two people in disagreement, that doesn't necessarily mean one person's right, the other person's wrong. People, because of their vantage point, their experience, they're going to reach different conclusions. Their intuitions are going to be different on certain issues. This is natural. And it's not always one side being right, one side being wrong. And I think to this evening's conversation very much demonstrated that. Um, so again, Ellie and Sarah, it's been a great pleasure. I hope to have you both back on very soon. Forever wants to join the after party. I will drop a link again in the chat. You click the link on the left-hand side. It says lounge, click lounge, and you'll be connected. It's via, uh, you could, you join via voice. Uh, it's kind of like a session we're doing now, but where audience members can join in and, and share and ask questions. So until next time, friends, have a beautiful weekend, everybody. Thank you so much, Adar. Bye. Thank you so much. Have a great